Is your job important? As human beings, we have an innate desire for significance, don't we? And we can find it many places. You've probably heard of TED Talks. If you haven't, TED began in 1984 as a technology, entertainment, and design conference. TED's not a guy. It's technology, entertainment, and design. Well, today you can watch more than 3,700 talks on their website, many of which discuss, quote, the importance, end quote, of particular topics like these. The importance of listening, okay? The importance of preserving cultural artifacts, of emotional tone in a digital age, of good conversation, of, good, of self-care, of visual literacy, of diversity in the comic book universe, of educating girls, and the importance of space lawyers. Those are all real topics or playlists that use the term importance on TED.com. Noah had the most important human job ever. There was only one job in the history of the world that was more important than what Noah did, and that was the Messiah's job, to come and bridge the gap between heaven and earth, a job no mere human could do, of course. But Noah, he was humanity's last and only hope for survival, one man from whom all of us descend, right? If Noah doesn't do his job, none of us are here, as far as the story goes. Uh, one man through whom the deliverer would ultimately come. Noah carried that torch and passed it along, and as a result, the deliverer arrived. There was a time when, in my dad's family, I was the last Pensiero male who could carry on our family's name. Of course, there are other Pensieros out there somewhere. Hopefully, that doesn't keep you up at night, but... <laughs> But if I wasn't to continue our particular line of, of Pensiero boys, that, then that was it. It would just shrivel up and we'd be lost to history. <laughs> Not really that big of a deal. But if Noah dies, if his family dies with everybody else, it's the end of humanity. But his life and his work aren't only important because of what he preserved. It also gives us two very important illustrations gives us a picture and a precedent to think about. On the one hand, it is a picture of God's unrelenting work of saving the lost. And on the other hand, it is a precedent for how we can also respond to the calls of God and we can invest our lives in his important work ourselves. And as we see in verse 13, it all begins with God's spoken word. Then God said to Noah, I have decided to put an end to every creature for the earth is filled with wickedness because of them. Therefore, I'm going to destroy them along with the earth. We don't know how specifically God revealed himself to Noah, whether it was in a dream or a vision or what we would call a theophany, a pre-incarnate visit of Jesus Christ to the earth. We see him doing that in the Old Testament from time to time. He will do so with Abraham later in this book. But however God revealed himself, he did so directly. Listen, God speaks directly to us. He speaks of who he is and what he's done and what he's going to do. Now, sometimes it's natural. We wish we could have a face-to-face -face chat with the Lord like Abraham did or Paul did or Solomon did. Those seem like really special things, and of course they were. But the truth is, you and I as Christians have a much greater volume of information than they did. 
We have the completed, inerrant, conspicuous word of God available to us anytime, day or night. In that word, God loves to reveal his heart and his plans to us, his people. We don't know every detail of every act of providence, of course. We won't, won't pretend to know everything that God is doing or saying or thinking. Of course not. But what we see in the testimony of Scripture and the testimony of history, church history, is that God likes to let us in on what he's doing. In Genesis 18, the Lord will say, should I hide what I'm about to do from Abraham? He doesn't want to. He, he's not like Oz, the great and powerful, always hiding behind a curtain. He wants to reveal himself. He gave general revelation. He gives special revelation. He gives personal interaction with you as he speaks to you by his spirit and through his words in particular ways. And the same characteristic is seen here. God wanted Noah to understand what he was going to be doing. Uh, it's interesting, you know, for those of you who've ever been maybe in a, a catastrophic situation or, or some sort of emergency situation, maybe you've been the first responder to like a car accident, there's very, typically very little communication, right? Someone takes charge and just starts giving orders and people follow those orders and hopefully fall back on training and those sorts of things. So here we're at, the, at this culmination almost, and, we, and we're, we're barreling towards this calamity, barreling towards this crisis where judgment is gonna come and fall on the earth. But God is gonna take the time to make sure that Noah understands what's going on, that he reveals and explains himself to Noah so that he can have um, a, a better knowledge of what is happening and why it's happening. He wanted Noah to understand what he was going to be doing. And so God explained the what and the why. His word is given to you so that you can know him, right? The Bible is not given just so that you can know what not to do because that is a, uh, there are things that we are not to do based off of the commands and the callings of God, of course. But the Bible is given to you so that you might know God and know what his intentions are. The Psalms and the book of Jeremiah show us that God wants us to know him. All over the scripture, we see that God wants us to know his voice, to know his works, to know his will, to know what gives him pleasure, to know how much he loves us. We've seen that his will for mankind was to fill the world with goodness. That was the original job, the original calling and commission. He said, go and fill the world with goodness, God's goodness, godly goodness. And instead, we see that the world was filled with the opposite. It was filled with wickedness and violence and rebellion. And so in response, a just response, a global flood was coming. There are those who would rather think of the flood as a local flood. It's a non-essential issue. Uh, and the reasoning usually comes down to ideas about the volume of water that is on the earth today. And, and the argument is, well, we kind of know the volume of water on the earth today, and it's not enough to cover all the mountains today. And there's lots of good discussion about that from scientific creationists or creation scientists who explain, well, number one, the topography of the world was completely different before the flood. There's lots of good discussions about that. Uh, the other reason is because of the prevailing assumptions about the age of the earth based off of the theory of evolution. So many scientific folks, even those, some of them within the Christian community who say, well, 
or, you know, I don't want to say that I don't believe in evolution. And so evolutionary theory says that the world is hundreds of thousands of years old. Wait, no, now it's millions of years old. Wait, now it's hundreds of millions of years old. Wait, now it's billions of years old. They keep moving that goalpost. And so they say, well, we can't, uh, we can't you know, deal with a global flood and try to make that jive with evolutionary theory. So it must have just been a local flood. Listen, again, it's not an essential issue, but both the Old and the New Testaments plainly, clearly indicate a global flood. And just logically, this makes sense. If the flood was local, there would be no need for Noah to build a boat. He'd simply need to take a road trip. This would be a, he'd be building a wagon, not a boat. And he would just be heading out for a little while. And additionally, the fossil record really does serve as an expert witness to the historicity of a sudden global flood like how you can find marine fossils on top of Mount Everest. That's true. You can find fish fossils way up there in the Himalayas. How you can find the fossils of air-breathing dinosaurs way down in ocean deposits. That's true as well. There are other fossils that are found vertically preserved across multiple strata layers that should have been taken hundreds of millions of years to form, but clearly that's not the case. We see the existence of fossilized soft tissue organisms like octopi. That shouldn't be possible over the regular fossilization uh, 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 process that takes a really long time, and yet there they are. Not to mention the fact that flood narratives can be found in the traditions of many, 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 many cultures all over the earth. They can be found in the history of every continent, in fact, not just in the Middle East, right? Not just in the region around the Fertile Crescent in that area, but they're found far and wide on every continent of the earth. Even in the Americas, the Powhatan tribe of Virginia have a tradition of the flood that all the world was once drowned except for a few that were saved, about seven or eight in a great canoe. I like that. In the in the Polynesian islands, they have flood stories, a flood narrative. And so this story has spread all over the world for many thousands of years that date back all the way to like 3000 BC. And so it's all over the earth. In fact, uh, when we put all of this together, it becomes very clear that the flood was global, it was sudden, and it is verifiable. Now, interestingly, when God revealed this coming judgment, Noah did not try to intercede on humanity's behalf in the sense that he did not try to talk God out of it. We see that happening sometimes uh, in the Old Testament. Abraham will famously try to save the city of Sodom from its judgment. He was trying to save Lot, his nephew and his family, but by extension, he said, hey, what if there's 10 righteous? Won't you spare the whole city for it? And you have that interesting back and forth that we'll get to later in the book where Abraham is interceding. He says, wait, don't, don't pour your judgment down on the city. Moses interceded on behalf of the children of Israel. They had sinned once again before God. And God said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a local judgment on these people. We're going to wipe all of them out. And Moses, I'm going to make a nation from you. And Moses said, no, please don't do that. Please give them forgiveness. And, and if you were going to do that, blot me out instead and let them live. Not so with Noah, though. But that doesn't mean that he wasn't going to try to intercede for them in a different way. It didn't mean that he wasn't going to be a part of God's uh, merciful work of salvation. In fact, after revealing the coming wrath, God himself then gives Noah an urgent commission. 
So you have these people that are ripe for judgment, that are full of rebellion and violence and wickedness in everything that they do. And then God says, not only is this the case, but we have to judge this sin, but let's figure out a way that maybe some of these people could be saved. Let's give them an offer of rescue and forgiveness that they could escape the justice that is due to them. And Noah was happy to be a part. Verse 14, God says, make yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it with pitch inside and outside. We don't know what gopher wood uh, was. Some believe it was cypress, but here's what's more precious to, to notice. When God told Noah to cover it with pitch, the word used there is the same word the Old Testament uses for atonement, the covering of sin. One Bible dictionary defines it this way as the price of a life, the ransom. In order to save us, our sin must be covered, right? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission for sins. It must be covered and covered by blood. We must be atoned for so that our lives can be ransomed, blood-bought. And of course, in 1 John chapter 2, we read this, Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for those of the whole world. And so what we're going to see is that the ark had plenty of space. Anyone who wanted to get on the ark could have gotten on the ark. And yet only eight people took the Lord up on this atonement. The ark becomes a picture for us of several things, but first and foremost, it is an illustration of salvation in Jesus Christ. He is the lifeboat who saves us from the unsurvivable judgment. He made the way secure by sealing our salvation with his own blood, and it's completely watertight. Not a drop is gonna get in. Not one of your sins is gonna accidentally be un, un, unpaid for or undealt with. No, it's all cleansed. You have been made white in the blood of the lamb. Though your sins were as scarlet, the Lord has made you white as snow if you trust in him for his salvation. We're told here that Noah was to make rooms in the ark. It's a tender image, actually, because we're told that the word God uses for rooms is actually nests. I just think that's really sweet. He says, make little nests in the ark for all the little animals. If you've seen the old Pixar movie, Wall-E, you might recall that all of humanity has been saved off of planet Earth uh, because of the you know, climate crisis or whatever. And they're in a giant ark-like spaceship. At the end, as they return to Earth, there's a scene where they're all just sort of standing on this big wide deck, and then the captain jumps to light speed, and all the people just sort of fall and crash around and are like, it's bedlam everywhere. Okay, that's not gonna be the experience of the animals on the ark. When they're on the waves and crashing around, people weren't like falling all over the places and barrels weren't breaking apart. They were nested cozy there in the ark. It was an appropriate and safe place prepared for each of them. And this is what God has done for you and I in his work of salvation. If you're a Christian, this is what God has done for you. He's not only giving you, given you a, an escape vehicle, right? Sometimes we see in these movies when, you know, the Black Hawk helicopter comes down to extract somebody. They're not comfortable, right? It's just like a metal box that somehow flies. But the Lord doesn't just barely save us by the skin of our teeth. I mean, it, it, it feels like that sometimes, but what the Lord has really done is he says, hey, not only am I gonna save you, I'm gonna put you in Christ and I'm going to cleanse you and I'm gonna save you from the wrath to come and from judgment, from the weight and the guilt of all of your sin, but also I am going to prepare a place 
for you. And of course, we think of that promise that Jesus made that he was going to heaven to prepare a place for us, and that's true. We look forward to that eternal nest, that eternal dwelling place. But we also consider how he prepares a nest for us on this side of eternity as well. Because God has scattered us where we are, when we are, so that we might then be knit together with other members of the local flock we find ourselves in proximity to. The Lord's work is to give us a home and a spiritual family that is safe and firm, built on the rock, able to withstand the storms of this world. And so um, you're not gonna be dangling from the helicopter as the Lord saves you, but he says, hey, I'm gonna bring you into my sheepfold. And in my sheepfold, there are other sheep. And in my sheepfold, I've prepared works for you to do and a, and a place for you to occupy and a spiritual family for you to be a part of so that you can be cozy and secure as you walk with me through this life on your way to your final dwelling place that he's preparing for us in heaven. Verse 15 says, this is how you are to make it. The ark will be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Some of you have been to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky, uh, so you've got a great mental picture of the proportions of this great barge. For those of us who haven't, it might be hard to imagine the size that we're talking about, particularly if your translation uses cubits instead of feet. The cubit is a, a measurement the ancient world used and will come up in the Bible from time to time. It's the length from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. And so naturally, that's going to not only vary from person to person, but it really varied from sort of region to region. I've got weirdly long arms, okay? So my cubit is 20 inches that I measured the other day. And some of you are going to have a different cubit. And so what is a cubit or how do we know the feet dimensions of this thing? Well, the truth is we're not exactly sure. When historians look at cubits throughout the ancient world, they find that they're all sorts, all kinds of different cubits. They were as short as 17 inches and some were as long as 25 inches. And so when we talk about the cubit, we think of it in terms of 18 inches because it's a good conservative estimate, kind of on the lower end. Uh, and it aligns with what we know about how the Jews, the Greeks, the Romans, and the Egyptians measured the cubit. They were all on the 17 or 18 inch cubit. And so that's where we get these numbers from. Using that length of cubit, and really it wouldn't have been any smaller than what we're talking about. It might have potentially even been bigger. And maybe if they were using a 25 inch cubit, a lot bigger, but let's go with the conservative estimate. Using this cubit measurement, the ark had over 100,000 square feet of deck space. 100,000 square feet, I discovered, is the same square footage that engineers use as a rule of thumb for a city block, by the way. And the ark would have had 1.4 million cubic feet of storage space because naturally not everything was just flat on the ground. You could store upwards. The ceilings of each deck would be about 15 feet up, right? Noah would have been able to bring 125,000 sheep-sized animals onto the ark if he had wanted to. And of course, there were some animals that were significantly larger than sheep, but there would have been a whole lot that were significantly smaller than sheep. And plus, some scholars speculate that the animals that were brought to the ark would have probably been juveniles, they think because that would have helped both in size, but also in longevity and re reproductive longevity after the flood, okay? And so we're talking about a lot of space for a lot of animals. This stage is about 12 feet by 16 feet. 
Because you start to think like, wait a minute, this is so much, and, and if you know the story at all, you know they're gonna be on the ark for a year, okay? And so you think, there's so many animals, that would require so much food, so much water, so many provisions, how could we, uh, this possibly be done? If you're like me, that, that's kind of a thought that creeps into your mind, especially if we haven't been to a barge or a cargo ship or a replica that is the, the size of this thing. But this stage is about 12 feet by 16 feet. Noah could build a storage box the length and width of this stage and build it up just four and a half feet about here. And that would be large enough to store two years worth of water for him and his family. Just this stage, okay? That's a pretty small amount of space for double the water he and his family would have needed. Now, of course, the animals would need water too, but we can start to get the picture of just how much space this ark really would provide. So how many animals did Noah bring on the ark? There's no way for us to know. We can only speculate and make some guesses, educated guesses. But keep in mind that he wouldn't have to necessarily bring each species of animal, not every single species of dog that existed at the time, every single species of dinosaur at the time or bird at the time, but only representative kinds from which other species would once again spring out of. But even still, because we think there's too many different kinds of animals, but even still, if we look at the data today, uh, it's estimated that there are fewer than 34,000 different species of land-dependent animals. When you take out invertebrates and marine animals and ones that would have been able to survive in the sea, and you look at land-dependent animals, there's fewer in 2016, fewer than 34,000 different species of land animals. Creation scientists suggest they could have taken fewer than 7,000 animals to repopulate the planet, but let's, let's go as high as say more than 10 times that amount, that if they would have taken 80,000 animals, which is more than double the number of species that exist in the world today, which makes sense because you have to have at least a pair of each animal, and some of the animals, he said, hey, bring seven of them. But let's double the number and then add some. 80,000 different animals, that would still only take up 60% of the deck space in the ark and leave the rest for provisions. Verse 16, you are to make a roof, finishing the sides of the ark to within 18 inches of the roof. You are to put a door on the side of the ark, make it with lower, middle, and upper decks. One door, just one. Remember, the ark was a working object lesson of salvation. And Jesus, when he was on the earth, made it very clear that there is one way and only one way that a person can be saved, and that is through him. He said, I am the door. It's me and it's no one else. I am the door. And we human beings, we are the sheep. We are his beloved lambs. And we are called to enter through that door. And Jesus said, if anyone enters by him, they will be saved. But if they will not, they will not see the Father. There is no hope for them. There is one way in, one way to salvation, not a different exit, not a different. You can't jump in through the window. There's one door, and that is through Jesus Christ, because he alone can atone for the sins of the world. Verse 17 says, understand that I am bringing a flood, floodwaters on the earth to destroy every creature under heaven with the breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. God was asking Noah to do something really unusual, to be sure. Remember, it had never rained on the earth. It certainly had never flooded. God had interacted with humans from time to time. 
but there had never been this level of involvement, this sort of action coming from heaven. And now the Lord asked Noah to spend his life's work on this project. It must have seemed so absurd to the people around him. But notice, God did not ask for silly or blind faith from Noah. He didn't ask Noah to do something absurd or silly just for the sake of standing out, just to look weird, just to, 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 to draw attention to himself. That's not what he's doing. He said, listen, understand what I'm doing and what your part to play in it is. It would have to be done by faith, trusting in what he had never seen and trusting that that was really going to happen. But what must have seemed foolish to the unbelieving world wasn't rooted in foolhardiness. It was rooted in God's revealed truth. And this is the same situation that you and I find ourselves in because Peter says in his second epistle, scoffers will come in the last days, scoffing and following their own evil desires, saying, where is his coming that he promised? Ever since our ancestors fell asleep, all things continue as they have been since the beginning of creation. They deliberately overlook this. By the word of God, the heavens came into being long ago and the earth was brought about from water and through water. Through these, the world of that time perished when it was flooded. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And so the Lord has said a very similar thing to us about a coming judgment that is gonna take over the entire world, right? And we're talking a lot about it in the book of the Revelation on Sunday mornings as we study through those passages. Now, we haven't seen that. And so much of it seems far-fetched. And the wide culture around us says, that's ridiculous, that's not gonna happen. You know, the world's not gonna be destroyed by fire except for climate change, right? So they can't decide. They say, well, that's just gonna happen later. But there, there are scoffers who say, the world is doing this and that. Of course, you know, there's no God in the sky who's gonna do any of that stuff. But the Lord is saying, hey, I'm not calling you into a blind or a silly faith. I'm calling you to just believe that what I have said is true, that my word is reliable. And, and not only can we just trust God because of who he is, but he says, here's the testimony of how not only I created the world, but then I said that this judgment was gonna befall the earth in the form of a global flood, and then it happened. And it's verifiable, and it's studyable, and you can see that it happened not just in the scripture, but you can also look out at creation and see, oh man, this thing really happened. And so then when the Lord says, by the way, that kind of judgment is coming again. Of course we can believe him and know that it is true and build our faith on that. Our belief and our activity as Christians is to be based on the word of God. The scripture is our bedrock, our blueprint, the compass of our faith. That is the basis for what we think, what we do, why we think it, and, and how we behave. It's not that we're just trying to get attention or that we're trying to get a feeling or that we're trying to make a name for ourselves or for some church or for some ministry. It's that the scripture reveals truth to us and then gives us a worldview, gives us a mindset, tells us the attitudes we should have about the world we're living in, and then gives us a commission to go into that world and make a difference in it. The scripture is that bedrock, that blueprint, that compass. The scripture has been prepared and preserved and passed on to you so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you have been instructed. 
Now, sometimes obedience does come before understanding. So we see here that God really wants Noah to understand. He's trying to reveal to him, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I want you to do. And so he's, he's speaking directly to him. And it's true that God wants to reveal things to us, but that doesn't mean we always get all the information that we want before things happen. Sometimes God asks us to obey before we have full understanding. We think of Abraham who had to obey God concerning Isaac before he understood what was going on. But God is very upfront with us about his plans and his overall will and his command and his desires. And so we base our faith not on feelings and not on popularity and not on trends. We base it on the word of God, which has been revealed and has been meticulously put together and preserved for you so that you can know these things and have certainty in them. Verse 18, but I will establish my covenant with you and you will enter the ark with your sons, your wife and your son's wives. This is the first use of the term covenant in the Bible. Biblically speaking, a covenant is a treaty. It's an alliance of friendship. There is no firmer guarantee of legal security, peace, or personal loyalty. But a covenant is no good unless the, the parties are trustworthy, or at least the guarantee party is trustworthy. Moses was delivering this book of Genesis originally to a group of people who God was offering a covenant to, right? When the, this book was originally delivered to the children of Israel, and it was delivered to them at a time where God said, I want to be in covenant with you. And this covenant has terms and this covenant has promises. And so it would have made sense for them to say, can we trust this covenant God? And so Moses is going to bring out the record. He's going to read back the record to them of God's covenant with Noah and how it was true and how God was reliable and how he would do so again with Abraham and then Isaac and then Jacob. Yes, this God could be absolutely trusted. He was true and his predictions were true and his power was true and he was proven again and again. And guess what? This same God wants to be in covenant with you. The new covenant offered to you by Jesus Christ because of what he did on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection. He says, drink, we're gonna do it tonight with communion. This is the blood of the new covenant. And so we know that this God is trustworthy and that he is true and his power is real and he has proven himself again and again. What were the terms that God set for salvation from judgment in this case? Here are the terms, come in, that's it. What does he say there? I will establish my covenant with you you will enter the ark. That was the deal. Jesus said, come unto me and I will give you rest. He said, anyone who hears, anyone who's thirsty, anyone who desires the water of life must simply come and receive it without price because the bill has already been paid. Jesus paid it all. He finished it. And now it is offered freely by his grace to anyone who wants to receive salvation. Verse 19 you are also to bring into the ark two of all the living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you. Two of everything, from the birds according to their kinds, from the livestock according to their kinds, from the animals that crawl on the ground according to their kinds, will come to you so that you can keep them alive. Take with you every kind of food that is eaten, gather it as food for you and for them. Some scholars suggest that the Lord would have put all the animals into hibernation uh, during their time on the ark, maybe, there's not really any textual indication of that. But here we see that Noah had an awesome responsibility to protect life, the life of his family, the lives of these creatures. They mattered to God. You know, sparrows matter to God. 
Your, your puppies and kitties matter to God. And certainly your life matters to God because you are worth much more than many sparrows. God cares about life. To do what God was asking him to do would have required a lot of effort and expense and thoughtfulness and application on Noah's part. But did you notice a key thing there? In verse 19, we read this, you are to bring. Oh man, it's hard to gather up animals sometimes, right? Have you ever tried to... You ever tried to get a hold of an animal that doesn't want to get a hold, held of, right? I mean, these are real people going through a real thing. It's easy for us to, on one hand, just think of all the animals being in a trance, and maybe they were. But if God came to you and said, I need you to round up all the dogs in Hanford, you're going to go ahead and do that. Would you think that's going to be really easy? So verse 19, you see that? But then what do we read in verse 20? We read, the animals will come to you. And so what do we learn there? We learn that God's work, God's call on your life, it is a partnership and he is your partner. It's, it's a partnership where he does the heavy lifting. He provides all we need to accomplish what seems impossible. He empowers and supplies and does and we cooperate with his work. It's not the other way around. You know, we call it Noah's Ark, but as we see here, it's all God's show. It's God's plan. It's God's method. It's his design. It's his, you know, four-point plan being executed, and that's great. As his people, we are simply stagehands serving the Lord to bring him honor, to further his purpose, and to join in the impossible, and Noah did. Look at verse 22. Noah did this. He did everything that God had commanded him. Thank God that he did because our lives depended on it. I, it's hard to think about that. Maybe, I don't know if you've ever had your life saved, you know, in your personal, you know, this right now life. Noah saved our lives because he was faithful to God and obedient to God. We talked last time about how Noah was a preacher. Peter says that about him. It's important that he preached, but let's not miss the facts, fact that he practiced what he preached too. He didn't just preach about, you know, getting right with God and avoiding judgment. He practiced what he preached. He said, hey, this is coming and I'm going to prepare accordingly. And he did so. He lived his life in belief that what God said was going to happen was actually going to happen. And so when the rain came down, the ark floated up. This ark tells us so much about how God works. Remember, it's primarily an illustration to us of his effort to intervene and save the doomed sinners of earth, anyone who will accept his invitation. Through this story, we see that God's work is long-suffering. It is patient. He waited so long before judgment finally fell. We see that God's work is always rooted in his grace. We see that what he does is sufficient for anyone who will believe in him. There's plenty of room. And we see that he is incredibly generous, generous to involve us in his good work, though we take so long to do what we're supposed to do, though he could do it himself so much better. He speaks and atoms form, right? He speaks and planets come together. And he says, hey, Noah, why don't you build the boat? And Noah's probably thinking, why don't you build the boat? This would be done like tomorrow, right? But the Lord says, yeah, but I want you to be a part of this. I want you to join me, the maker of heaven and earth, in doing this great thing. And so we also see that not only is he generous to involve us in his good work, but along the way, he's generous to supply what we need, all of the help. He's generous to give us the strength and the understanding to do what he has asked us to do. 
but we also see that God's work is exclusive. There's no other way, there's no other boat, there's no other method. It's God's way or the grave's way. And, and, and Noah believed God and joined him in that work. So then how does this story speak to us of our lives? Is it wrong to say that, well, this can give us insight for how we can serve God? Because after all, we're not Noah, right? I mean, he's doing something big. He's doing something important. And we think, well, my work, my life isn't important like a guy making an ark to save humanity. You know, some scholars estimate that Noah was building the ark for 120 years. Some say it was 100 years. Our friends at Answers in Genesis put it somewhere between 55 and 75 years. No matter what, we would call that, from our vantage point, a lifetime of effort, a lifetime of work. If you've never read Robinson Crusoe, man, I highly recommend it. It's a great book. It is surprisingly Christ-centric if you don't know the story. But in one section, the book talks about just how difficult it was for Robinson to fell a single tree and to start breaking it down to fashion uh, some crude tools and a board or two from it, the time and the effort. And now imagine the millions of, of feet of board that, that Noah would have to work with and, and the vats of pitch and, and just the effort and the shaping of beams and the buttressing of everything. I mean, this was an incredible, important work, right? Is your job important? It is. And, and Noah's life and his testimony reveals that it is. It shows us that it is. Here's why. I mean, we think of the incredible scope of the ark and we think, yeah, well, that's Noah. He's a special case. He's a special servant of God. But you know, the whole world around Noah did not think his work was important, obviously, because they laughed and they scoffed at him and they ignored his preaching. And I'm sure they came and hassled him about his building. And so they thought what he was doing was very, very unimportant. But it was what God had asked him to do, and it served a very great, very heavenly purpose. It served God's purpose of saving lives. And that's exactly what God has called you to do, too. And God has scattered you into certain communities in this time so that you can fulfill these different purposes. Sometimes we think, well, what I'm doing doesn't feel important. Sometimes I think of the, the more modern uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory movie. I remember the dad, his job, he's the guy that puts the cap on the toothpaste. That's his, whole, that's his job at the factory, and a robot replaces him naturally. But maybe you feel like, hey, what I'm doing, I don't feel like I'm really doing anything that big for God. I don't feel like my work as his servant is important, but it is. You are a special servant of God, just like Noah was. And I'm not just saying that to make you feel better. I'm saying that because that's what the scriptures declare. Hebrews declares that we are just the next links in the same chain of cooperation that Noah was a part of. It talks about the hall of faith. And Noah's in there, and it talks about Noah, it talks about all these great heroes, and then it says, and now you guys are also part of this ongoing cooperation from God. And here's what's even more amazing, is that the Bible shows us that it's not the scale of what you do that matters. Scale does not matter in God's economy. In fact, God says that you can make a world-changing eternal difference by handing someone a cup of water, by writing a letter like an epistle, by praying for someone. Even the countenance of your faith, face can be used by God to save a life. 
or to be a part of the life-saving work of God's ministry. And so remove the scale of Noah's project for a moment and see how he did what he did. See Noah's faithful cooperation with God as a precedent set for you and I who are continuing in the footsteps of the faithful. What do we see? We see a man being obedient to the word of God that was revealed to him. We see a man who is carrying out his personal calling. He didn't decide to make the ark. God called him to do it. It was a big project, a big job. But more importantly is what God asked him to do. He didn't ask Enoch to do it. He didn't ask Methuselah to do it. He didn't ask Shem, Ham, and Japheth to do it. He asked Noah to do it. That was his personal calling. And we see that our work for God is especially concerned first with the family, not at the expense of everyone else, but it is a primary responsibility. And we see that though God does the heavy lifting and pours out his grace along the way, it is going to cost us something to participate in the important work of God. And it is meant to be a lifelong cooperation with him. And we see that when all is said and done, we are meant to be purveyors of salvation. That's the job, being a part of that effort, the saving effort, a lot of moving parts, a lot of different aspects, a lot of different ways that we can be involved, but that's the, that's the goal, that's the job, salvation for the lost. The goal of Christian work is getting people saved because this is why it's a goal, because this is how important that work is the Bible says that as we do that work, we can hasten the coming of the Lord. That's crazy. And now we think, wow, my effort towards the Lord is really important. God is saying, hey, I will let you ratchet up the timetable on this thing as you serve me and as you spread the message of salvation to the world. Each aspect of this project was very important. In this work of God, you might be the person keeping the pitch warm or passing the boards along. You may be herding some cats into their nest. You may be answering questions about what, the, what God has said to some unbeliever passing by. You might be instructing your kids in the way of the Lord. What's important, what makes your work important is how you follow Noah's example and carry out your calling according to God's word and his purpose, being ready to receive whatever he brings you or calls you to, remembering that a judgment is coming once again, but salvation is available to anyone and everyone who will believe. Find your importance, not in things like space lawyers, but find your importance by drawing near to God and continuing in your trust in him, continuing in his revealed truth, continuing in the tradition of servants like Noah.